Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Some of the best candidates for the dubious honour of being the last witches to be hanged in England are Temperance Lloyd, Mary Trembles and Susanna Edwards. All were beggar women living in Biddeford in Devon who were tried at the Exeter Sizes and condemned to death on the basis of one confession and much hearsay in 1682. Three years later, Alice Molland was also convicted and sentenced to death at the Exeter Assizes, but about whether her execution was actually carried out, we have little information. This means that the so-called Biddeford witches are the candidates about whose case we know the most. It was unusual timing. At the Home Circuit Assizes between 1660 and 1701, all 48 witchcraft indictments ended in an acquittal. Accusations were still being made, therefore, but the judiciary was just less willing to believe that witchcraft was at work. But not in Devon. Here, a sense that witches walked the world was still held in common in the 1680s by ordinary and elite folk, by the unlearned and the lettered, by rural and urban populations. And those who proved most likely to attract suspicion were the very poorest of the poor. Joining me to talk about the case against Lloyd, Trembles and Edwards is John Callow, Honorary Research Fellow at the University of Suffolk and the author of the recent book, The Last Witches of England, A Tragedy of Sorcery and Superstition. It is a real pleasure to talk to you about this book, which is a fascinating examination of a very, very late case of witchcraft. The last witches in England were accused in Biddeford in Devon in 1682. And in your book, you establish a very strong sense of what Biddeford was like at this time. Maybe we should start by getting a kind of sense of the place and its culture in the late 17th century. Well, Biddeford is a fascinating place. It's a major seaport. It's not the sleepy little tourist town it is today. It was a major player in Atlantic trade. So... It was one of the three great seaports for bringing tobacco, the new great cash crop from the American colonies. It's something of a boom town. Its wealth is based on the Americas and also on the Newfoundland fisheries. And of course, with that sense of exploration and with that sense of endeavour come great risks. 
that it's a maritime community, it's used to losing people in shipwrecks and storms, but its citizens are in many ways attuned more to what's happening on the Chesapeake in the new American colonies than they are in other places in Britain. Certainly, even across other areas of Devon, that they probably had more in common with people on the Chesapeake than they ever did in Plymouth, because communications were so much better and our roads were so bad. So it's a bustling, vibrant commercial centre. It's got the new consumer goods coming in, tobacco, as we've said, but also coffee and tea and hot chocolates. New buildings are shooting up, and the port is alive with new ideas, new experiences, and new building work that are transforming the whole look of the place. The only constant, actually, is the great medieval bridge, the long bridge, which spans the Torridge, and is an important bit of our tale. So it's a happening, vibrant cosmopolitan society. And one of the things that really comes out of the book is the surprising, perhaps, idea that it is in this affluent, learned society that we have these late accusations. What are the kind of explanations that historians have traditionally used to explain the sort of triggers of the witch hunt in 1682? Biddeford really defies everything we think about the cliched witch hunt. As you say, it's late, it's urban, it's driven by people we might think of as being learned or sophisticated, so it's not accusations from below. It's not village level. And that really is its fascination. Traditionally, historians have looked for any number of causes of witchcraft from out-and-out misogyny, which there certainly is a good argument to be made for that, but maybe not monocausal. Neighbours just not getting on, hating each other. The classic line from Alan McFarlane onwards about the refusal of charity. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And after the Reformation, there aren't the charitable institutions that would have given to the poor in the same way. So things are getting tighter and society is getting far more stratified. There have been purely political explanations for the hunts, but in Biddeford we see a mixture of all of these. So to give you a view of it, we have a society in flux. Well, all societies are in flux, but we have a society that had been dominated by Puritan merchants all the way through the Civil War. With the return of the king, this ends. There's a new oligarchy put in. And the trouble with Biddeford, really, is that nobody is quite where they're supposed to be, and nobody is really who they're supposed to be either. So I'll give you some for instances. The first one is that the resident landlord, the squire, one of the Grenville family who'd held the manor from time immemorial, is absentee. He's not there to literally watch the shop. He's Charles II's great friend. He's down in Whitehall. He's building himself a new substantial house out in the country. He's not really interested in Biddeford. The Mares have been turned over, the old Puritans are gone, there are new families in there who really don't have any kind of popular support at all and are a bit afraid of the people they're supposedly looking after and ruling. Then we come to the vicar, Ogilby, who has been imposed. So the Puritan preachers' families, the Bartlett's, have all been slung out literally on their ear from the manse. And you've got Ogilby, who is parachuted in, he's Scots, he's a free thinker, and nobody likes him. 
and he doesn't really do his job. So in the vacuum, and of course nature abhors a vacuum, we have this character Francis Hahn who turns up, who I think probably wanted to make his name as a witch hunter, and he takes over that kind of function. So in Biddeford we've got social tensions, we've got the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, and in the middle of it, poor women who were defenceless and marginal in every aspect of that word. So, the three women we think of as the Biddeford witches, Temperance Lloyd, Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles, were marginal in every sense of the word. They were marginal in terms of their gender, being women, of course, in a misogynistic society, the idea of patriarchy everywhere, the man as the head of the household, the king as the head of the state. They were marginal in terms of their age. They're all old. When Lord North comes to write his description of the trial, very shortly after it happens, he talks about them being incredibly aged, and actually they weren't that old. Historians have traditionally tended to think that they were in their 80s, when in actual fact they were in their early 60s, and actually one of the women might have been in her early 50s. So hard work, labour had wisdomed them before their time. The other areas of marginality are in terms of wealth, that they are people who are on the breadline. They know absolute poverty. Starvation is a real thing. And the other marginality for them is their marital and societal status. They are all single women, although not from choice. Susanna Edwards is a widow. Mary Trembles had never married. She's got aged parents who'd been beggars before her. And Temperance Lloyd was a deserted woman. They're all left by their children. And they're utterly alone in the world. So on all these lines, they're marginal, they're afraid, they have to live by their wits, and they have to live in a society that is completely loaded against them in every conception of that word. You've just brilliantly summarised what must have been an extraordinary amount of work. I was really struck reading your book at how you had systematically trawled through the administrative records, such as the parish registers and the dole lists, to bring these women's histories to light. So (laughs) congratulations on that. We should pick up the story with what the movie makers would call the inciting incident, the catalyst for the accusations, which seems to have been, at least for the immediate accusations that lead to their fate, it seems to have been the 30th of September 1681, that moment of encounter between Temperance Lloyd and a woman called Grace Thomas. Can you tell us what happened? Grace Thomas has been beset by aches and pains and illnesses that nobody can explain for weeks upon end. The trouble here, again, going back to the idea of learned ideas about witchcraft, is that a family take her along to see an apothecary who suggests witchcraft as a possible source of her ailments. And this idea bores its way into her skull. Suddenly, she rallies, she feels better, she begins to go out taking the night air. She's feeling a little bit of relief, she's feeling a little better about the world. So she goes walking through Biddeford on all the streets. That's a great thing about Biddeford. You can tread in these people's footsteps because the actual street plans haven't changed from the early modern period. You can go up Gunstone Lane, you can go along the quayside. 
You can go to the marketplace, and these are the areas where Grace Thomas was taking her walk. She goes out and takes the night air and runs into Temperance Lloyd, the old beggar woman. And the problem with Temperance Lloyd is she is socially maladroit. She can never achieve the effect she hopes for. So when she wants to be scary, she's sinister and murderous. When she wants to be kind, she's unnerving and over the top. So she sees Grace. We don't know if they'd ever really met before. They must have known each other by sight because Biddeford was a small town. She goes up to her, she grabs her, she falls on her knees, she says, Oh, Mistress Grace, I'm so glad to see you so well, I'm glad to see you so happy. What she was aiming at, doubtless, was that she'd be given a penny, that this solicitation would please the ailing woman, and she would somehow win her heart and a little gift with it. What actually happened was that she appeared out of the shadows as a sinister figure, a bundle of rags, shouting invading private space and this is one of the things that comes again and again and again in the Biddeford story the idea of the invasion of the home the invasion of the person so when she goes out to grab at a younger wealthier woman it takes on the aspect not of a solicitation but of an assault so it's a frightening experience for Grace and it's one that seems to root Temperance Lloyd in her mind as somebody who bears her a great deal of ill will and that leads to dreadful and largely unforeseeable consequences. And you've found that some analysis of responses to modern beggars is actually quite instructive in helping us think about that, which I thought was fascinating. Mm, I think there is that, and there's been a lot of work done. Unfortunately, we live in a society which, in some respects, is closer to the 17th century than maybe the post-war period, the, the great years of the welfare state ever were. And when you think about what it takes to earn your crust, and it was a crust in the case of these women, from begging, there are various mechanisms you can use. You can be pliable, you can be a supplicant. This is what Temperance Lloyd was attempting to do with a terrible result with Grace Thomas. Or you can be, in the modern parlance, something of an aggressive beggar. And Temperance Lloyd attempted this as well. How you survive on the streets, of course, is dependent upon your wits. Very often, women beggars then as now will band together. If you think about their vulnerability, their vulnerability from attacks, from blows, from sexual assaults, then groups of women acting together are far stronger. Temperance Lloyd was a bit of a lone wolf in all this, but we do know that on occasion Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles begged together, and Susanna Edwards seems to have been part of a number of women who roamed the streets of Biddeford and solicited goods to keep them literally from starvation. Temperance Lloyd, though, continues to strike the wrong note, and she continues to strike it in terms of aggressive begging. She's on the quayside. She's finally got what she thinks is a lucky break from somewhere. She's got a basket full of apples that she's attempting to sell. And rich younger woman and her child go past and the child steals an apple and runs off with it. And this is an act of cleverness. It's cheekiness. And the mother thinks it's absolutely hilarious. However, for Temperance Lloyd, the gulf separating them is absolutely enormous. That apple is the difference between 
getting some money for a little bit of heat, a little bit of light, maybe a little bit of food in her belly if she's really lucky, some tobacco even that evening. So she follows him up the street, she remonstrates, and it's a scene really that's eerily reminiscent from the great Disney films. If we think of Snow White and the Wicked Queen transforming herself into the beggar woman with the basket of apples with a gnarled hand proffering death. So she follows them, she cries out against them, she remonstrates, and she curses. And it's the curse that for both child and for temperance turns out to be fatal. Within a week, the child has sickened and died and is in the earth. The mother locates the whole decline of a child to this row with the beggar woman. And this is one of the accusations used against her. So begging is a difficult, dangerous, unpleasant trade. And it's one that, unfortunately, these three women do not excel at. And I think maybe the problem as well is, given their gender, that how do you defend yourself as a woman on the streets? You defend yourself by being more articulate. You use words, you use phrases to hit and to cut instead of actual physical blows. And that's what leads them down the path to the courtroom. And once you begin to get a reputation as a witch or as somebody who is capable of cursing, it kind of stays with you. Yes, I thought this was really an interesting piece of thinking, actually, from you in terms of this idea that Lloyd has, amongst others, got a reputation as a witch and the sort of psychology of why people came to believe they were witches, especially poor people, might adopt this reputation ascribed to them that they were practising evil magic seems to be a really fascinating take. Well, quite possibly they were. Witchcraft accusations don't blow up overnight. They take years to develop. Very often we think of people being, you know, run into the courtrooms and immediately convicted. Sometimes these tensions would fester in communities over years. So in the case of Temperance Lloyd, she's first run in as a suspected witch more than a decade before. So her first... Brush with the Law is 1671, then she has another in 1679, and finally the terrible one is 1682. So she's had this reputation for a really long time. Does she own the identity of a witch? Well, in a society where Christianity, where the notion of being damned or saved affected absolutely everything in your waking and sleeping life, you can't get away from the fact that the idea of damnation was ever-present. Temperance Lloyd seems to have come out of a Welsh Puritan family. She was a new settler in Biddeford. She had been, if you like, one of the godly party during the Civil Wars. But it's difficult to actually extract her own words because, of course... People want to impress others in authority. They want to say the right, in inverted commas, things to please. But when we actually get the women onto the scaffold, when they're in the last minutes of their lives at Heavy Tree, I think Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles do speak with an eloquence and a reflexivity that perhaps they lacked before. And what we get through Temperance Lloyd is her trying to pick out the accusations, and she's berated. She's the last one who goes up the ladder to hang. If we imagine the scene, you've got a baying crowd out for these women's blood. Her two confederates have already hanged. They're dangling some feet above her. 
And at this moment when Temperance is facing eternity, she's standing literally on the brink between the state of life and death, both the Reverend Han, the would-be witch hunter, and one of the Exeter justices begin to berate her once again about whether or not she was a witch. And you get the sense from the record that was taken down at the gallows of her trying to pick out the truth and the lies. She's asked, did she hurt the child? Did she try and sell an apple? Well, yes, I did. Yes, well, I might have cursed the child. That's true. But then you say I caused a boy to fall out of the rigging of a ship and die. I didn't do that. I didn't have the power to do that. I can't raise storms. I'm not sure if it is the devil who met me. There was a gentleman in black. So you can see the way she's internalising her guilt, thinking about herself as a sinner in the way Susanna Edwards also does on the scaffold. And of course, if you're trying to get to an honest response, you sometimes trip yourself up. Yes, unless you just deny everything. And if you come from a Puritan culture where there is an emphasis on examining yourself, introspection, identifying your sins, then you're bound to say some things that get you in trouble. That's exactly right. And you see, at her earlier trial, Temperance Lloyd had very sensibly kept her mouth shut and denied everything. The difference in 1682 is that the three women plead guilty, that they say that they did do these things, and therefore there's very little the jury could do. The jury, in a sense, could do nothing but return a guilty verdict. If we're looking for a villain in the piece, really it is Lord North when he writes to the Secretary of State whether still could have been a reprieve, and he not only resolutely refuses to do that, he almost literally hammers the nails in the women's coffin by pushing for their death sentences to be upheld. Now, the fact that Lloyd has been accused before turns out to be crucial in obviously just as building a reputation as a witch, even though she's been accused and tried and been found innocent before, but also crucially because in 1679, when she was accused of bewitching the child who had died, she was searched for the witch's mark. And this humiliating experience is worth discussing because it proves to be crucial three years later. Well, I mean, essentially, between the two searches, she'd aged, she'd got older. There is this idea, and we've got to think in 17th century terms, that you had established in law, you had established at the universities in intellectual practice, this idea of the science, or as we'd see it today, the pseudoscience of demonology, the science of demons. And key to that is the idea of the pact with the devil, which King James VI and I writes about at some length. Now, what that does is it transforms not only the soul of the witch by signing the covenant with the Prince of Darkness, it also actually has physical repercussions, that your physiognomy changes as well. You're no longer seen as being entirely human. And one of the things that develops are these supernumerary teats where your familiars can suckle, can draw your blood. What's a familiar? Well, they're little or sometimes big animals. They're very much features of the English witch hunts, and to an extent in Scotland, they're not in continental Europe. So there's this idea that you get, along with becoming a witch, a demon that can shape change and can take animal form. Sometimes it can be as small as a flea, it could be a rabbit. At Biddeford, we have familiars in the form of magpies, 
pigs, even a lion, and feral cats that roam the quayside. So the women go through this humiliating process. We've got a clear account of what happened to Temperance Lloyd at the town hall, where she's stripped by other women who are younger, who are richer, who are part of Biddeford's mainstream society in a way that she is not, and they search her for the witch's mark. Now, it's no surprise as an elderly poor woman, she's got all kinds of lumps and bumps, and lo and behold, they find in her genitals polypses that they then declare to the magistrates are devil's marks, and this is seen as evidence that can be upheld in a court and is used to convict her. And as you say in your book, these cervical polypses are something that just develop quite naturally if a woman has had children, is now menopausal or postmenopausal, and it's the sort of thing that does happen, but a younger woman wouldn't know that. That's it. And also, how many times were women in the habit of actually even midwives, and the midwives do play a role in the Biddeford case, of investigating their sisters? Old women as well were a comparative rarity in early modern society, and very old or very worn women even so. So these things come across as strange, different, unsettling, and very much so in a male-driven polity where female spheres of body, of industry, of life, of well-being, of conversation are off-limits in a way that we would find very hard to deal with today. So, crucially, this search has happened in 1679 and then happens again in 1682. And I just want to pick up on a couple of things that you mentioned there in terms of thinking about familiars, for example. If we go back to Grace Thomas and her accusation against Temperance Lloyd, eight months after that encounter and then she falls ill, you also mentioned a couple of other incidents. A child's doll found perched on her bed, the magpie that flies into her sick chamber... How and why were these things being connected to Lloyd? They're being connected because these acts, the uncanny appearance of animals pushing their way into private spaces, scratching to try and get into the home, and witches were always thought to get in at unguarded entry points, so through the windows, through the doors, obviously, down through the chimneys. And this is where stray animals often try and get in. Now, Temperance Lloyd is associated because of the early encounter when she was soliciting money off Grace Thomas when she was out late at night, but also a slightly more sinister occasion when, as you say, the magpie came fluttering up at the window. And that scares the whole household. They'd had a sleepless night. This creature tries to get into the chamber. And then, just as they're calming down, there's a scruffling and a scraping from outside the eaves, and they find Temperance Lloyd eavesdropping and they link the two together they link the magpie and they link the old woman and they stick them both firmly in the category of witchcraft now why as you say are they continually thinking that the actions of a stray cat the actions of a magpie are to do with the witches well I'd suggest in the case of Biddeford it's because you find the animals performing similar functions in the town that you do with the beggar women. They're scavengers. So along the quayside, what's broken open? Cargoes of food, the tobacco, 
bits of pottery, all these kinds of things, and the women raid them for sustenance at the same time as the animals do, the cats and the pigs that go rummaging through as well. There are lots of little allotments, market gardens in 17th century Biddeford, and the women hang out here. They're looking for windfall apples. They're gleaning bits of fallen timber that they can sell as firewood. So effectively, the actions of the animals and the actions of the women become linked in the popular mind. The instance of the rag doll turning up on Gracie's bed is another one of those sinister things. It appears there, and that's far more to do with image magic. The idea that the women actually have a poppet that they can torture through driving thorns or pins into the cloth that then, of course, become Grace Thomas's flesh. When the habitations of the women are raided, and this tells you just how absolutely poor and downtrodden they were, the things to be borne away are a single strip of leather that seems to have been pricked by thorns. And again, they think of sympathetic magic, that the piece of leather that was once an animal's skin takes on the appearance of Grace Thomas's skin that is having all these feelings like pinpricks running up and down her spinal column. And they put two and two together, and I'm afraid they make five. They certainly do. Meanwhile, Suzanne Edwards and Mary Trembles were, of course, also being accused of witchcraft. What's the catalyst for their accusation? Well, the catalyst for them is the classic thing. It's refused charity. They've been out all day. It's Easter, they're cold, they're tired. They turn up at a household where the master of the house had always been kind to them. Instead, they find his wife and she sends them away with a flea in their ear. They walk around the town some more. They get more disgruntled. They get crosser. They give it a second go. They turn up begging for a farthing's worth of tobacco. The wife is there again and a row ensues. And again, because of the harsh words that are bandied back and forth, the household falls under the cloak of illness, and the women are suspected. And when the hue and cry of the town goes out for them, they've got nobody to go to, nowhere to run to. This is one of the problems with the three women. They're almost kettled up in the town. They don't have the means to get out once they're abandoned by their families. So in the case of Trembles and Edwards, you get this feeling they're almost like blackbirds caught in barbed wire when the mob is out against them. They go running from one end of the town to the other and are finally confronted and brought in by the mob to the town hall and arrested. So it's a pitiable tale about women who have very little to go for them other than their wits, and I'm afraid to say their sharp tongues. Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen, then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At the time the weapons were tested, there was this 
a perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion-dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. theme that comes out again and again in your book is the role of authority figures in Biddeford legitimizing beliefs in witchcraft. And it's happened before this point. And one of the ways that this happens, it comes out through members of the clergy and it comes out through apothecaries and all sorts of people. But also, crucially, after the women have been accused of witchcraft, the justices of the peace make this extraordinary decision to abrogate responsibility for the operation of justice almost completely, allowing the accusers, or at least their confederates, to interrogate the accused. How crucial do you think this was? Well, it is in terms of the fact that they are not protected by the law, that they're subject to rough justice, so Temperance Lloyd is rushed off to the church, to St Mary's in Biddeford, And there she's forced, really, in the face of a baying mob, to try and say the Lord's Prayer. And surprise, surprise, she fluffs the words. You don't know what's happening to her. You don't know if she's being manhandled. You don't know if she's being punched. You don't know if she's being scratched, if they're trying to draw blood to break her power as a witch. So the women are run round from pillar to post by their neighbours and the constables. And as you say correctly, the town authorities really give in to the mob every step of the way, and they're desperate to have the women gone. They're desperate to get them out of the town, and they're desperate to get them into the Essex Assizes. But the way they handle the case is completely different because of, of course, as these things always do. Witch hunts pick up in intensity. It's like a big snowball rolling down a hill. And there are two other women. So when we talk of the Biddeford witches, there are actually five women who were accused of witchcraft in Biddeford in 1682. But in the case of Mary Beer and Elizabeth Caddy, things take a totally different turn the justices are prepared to protect these women because they're younger, they're moneyed, they probably come from Tory families, they're not from the sort of Puritan begging fringe of the town. And these two other women are not arrested, they're allowed to remain at home, they're protected by the mob, and 
when it comes to the pre-trial sort of horse trading that goes on at Exeter before the Assizes, Thomas Hill, the clerk of Biddeford, is prepared to throw the three beggar women under the wheels of the cart of justice. He protects the other two, and the cases are quickly and quietly dropped. So mob rule is one of the decisive factors in the Biddeford case. Mob rule, but evidently, as you've just said, the power of the authority figures to say yay or nay, to hold the crowd off or not as they see fit. Mobs really, and we know this in the present day, they can only flourish when the authorities allow them to flourish for whatever reason. And one of the very good arguments, I think, for the rise of the witch hunts is the fact that society's elites from the middle of the 17th century onwards are very unsure of themselves. They're very unsure of their powers. They don't quite understand the people anymore that they're supposed to be ruling. Their manners, their culture, their ideas set them apart. And I think this is accentuated by the sort of political crisis that's unfolding in Biddeford, where you have a thin veneer of Tory oligarchs running the show and a religious dissenting community of radical Whigs who make up the vast majority of the population of the town. So it's a real pressure cooker environment and as you say correctly, this all flourishes because at every step of the way the authorities are prepared to wash their hands of these women. It happens in Biddeford with Hill and the Justices of the Peace and the Mayor. It happens at Exeter with the judges, and it happens in Whitehall with the Secretary of State. And at no point are any of these men at any time prepared to stand up to the fury and terror of the mob. Now, one of the things that happens is that relatives of Grace Thomas, the woman who had had the encounter with Temperance Lloyd, so Thomas and Elizabeth Eastchurch, they're called, are allowed to question Lloyd. And obviously we're operating here in a kind of really mediated way in terms of what we get from Lloyd's testimony. We're getting it kind of wrung out of her by these East Churches. What I found striking about it, though, is she seems to have got things wrong you know you make the case you know that her familiar animals seem to control her rather than vice versa for her the devil isn't a good-looking man Susanna Edwards will say something more conventional but this kind of strange cavorting creature with big eyes what do you make of what she says in this testimony wow Again and again, the difficulty with witch trials is you have a learned elite trying to wrap things up in a nice, orderly fashion to provide a coherent story. And the trouble is that witches and demons and magic and fairy folk are not subject to conventional rationality. And nor is folk belief. So there may be elements in some of Temperance Lloyd's accounts of prior folk belief, the gambling little creature you mentioned that she encountered on Gunstone Lane that looks a bit like a toad with saucer eyes and sort of somersaults around her. Is she thinking in terms of it being some sort of fairy apparition, something like that, possibly? Could it be simply, I mean, it sounds terribly unromantic or ungothic to say, but, you know, she's old. Does she have cataracts? Is the light reflecting in strange ways? 
Is her blindness playing tricks on her? There are all these kinds of things going on. So at no time do the accusers manage to get straightforward confessions out of the women. They get a hodgepodge of perhaps, maybe, something happened to me. And all these things tend to happen at points when the women are at their lowest ebb. So, for instance, when Temperance is out gathering broom, it's the dark gentleman who offers to take the load off her shoulders and carry it for her. So there's an element of wish fulfilment as well. So all of these things are wrapped up, but the terrible thing that happens with all the witch trials is the moment the devil is introduced, folk belief, village law, simple superstition can have the darkest and most terrible readings made of them. And that's what supercharges the witch hunts in the 16th and 17th centuries. Yes, that's really interesting. And I think the wish fulfilment element is so crucial to it, isn't it? I mean, that's something that comes up again and again in this. I mean, Edwards' testimony is sort of more conventional, you know, in the sort of classic scenario of the devil asks, you know, are you poor and... (laughs) If you do what I want, you know, (laughs) I will give you everything you need and or desire. But actually also the other thing, of course, is that even in her case, it's arrived at in an unconventional fashion. Once again, people are sort of manipulating the story that we get from her. You tell how the confession that we eventually get from her is reported by this woman, Joanne Jones. She's been questioned by someone else, a man who never appears and gives testimony. And so, you know, ultimately, we sort of don't know what Joanne Jones makes up or what what has been sort of fed into it and what actually comes from Edwards. Well, that's right. That is the problem. We have this marvellous quote from Lyndall Roper, the great feminist writer, where she says, in the 17th century, we hear women's voices and poor women's voices in particular far more clearly at any other time than in the extremists of the witch hunt. But of course, there's a lot of truth in that. But even then, they are mediated. And in the case of Biddeford, they're mediated through eavesdroppers. That's what Joanne Jones is doing. She's hanging around listening because jail at the end of the bridge seems to be open to absolutely anybody who wants to accuse the women at any time of the day or night. And they just hang around and they, as you say, they report whatever is said. And unfortunately, Trembles and Edwards fall out with each other and squabble and all of this is taken down you've ruined me, no, you've ruined me. And they do compound their problems with that. I think the other thing to remember about this is the paucity of these women's imaginations, that we're not looking at Dr Faustus where Mephistopheles promises him a rainbow bridge and Helen of Troy and all these marvels. All they can think about is having the merest morsels of food to make life a bit more pleasant and in fact even on their last day on earth one of the reports describes temperance lloyd contentedly eating an apple on the cart on the way to execution that she was quite determined that if nothing else she was going to have a decent last meal so it's a tale of want it's a tale of wish fulfillment it's a tale of deception that operates on all kinds of levels. Maybe the women were self-deceiving. The authorities certainly were deceiving, whether it was the medical profession, whether it was the midwives, whether it was the Secretary of State, whether it was one of the judges. They were all pulling down the darkest and most improbable conclusions on a fairly sorry local tale. 
So one startling thing about your analysis is just how many holes there were in the women's testimonies. If anyone had cared to look, why do you think that in 1682, so really late in the story of witchcraft accusations and trials, there wasn't more scepticism towards the allegations? Well, they're in trouble in terms of Biddeford because nobody speaks for them. If one single person, man or woman, had actually got up and made a case for their defence, they probably wouldn't have hanged at Heavy Tree. Nobody does. Everybody in the town hates them. It's wrong, though, to think that society was unsceptical about witchcraft. The women are incredibly unlucky because their case comes for trial at a time when the Anglican Church and the Tories are fighting a rearguard action against what they think are innovations in religion. We've got science, we've got the Enlightenment knocking at the door. But at the same time, people like Glanville, who was a member of the Royal Society, knew Charles II, really at the top of the social system, he writes treaties after treaties about the validity of witchcraft. And he says, well, if we take the witch out of the Bible, what else are we going to strip away from the Bible? If we don't believe in literal religious truth, aren't we going to end up with atheism? So witchcraft is really a great symbol to be defended by reactionaries in late Stuart society at a time when the reaction under Charles II and later his brother James for a year or two seems to be winning absolutely everything in sight. So there's this great political drama, great intellectual drama played out over the women's heads which they can have known nothing about and it's that that brings them kicking and screaming all the way to the gallows. So our alleged witches have been taken to Exeter where they're awaiting the assizes and the source material for the trial isn't good. We don't have the trial records. But what do we have and what can it tell us about the trial? Well, the best source are the writings of the North Brothers. One leaves a biography of his brother who was one of the two trial judges and then we've got the brother's letter to the Secretary of State describing the women, describing how they behaved in court. The pamphlets allude a little bit to the trial but it's wrong to think of the trial in the way we think of trials today with defence barristers, the leisure of a day in court. This was real machine justice. When you look at the numbers and the rapidity of people forced through the assizes, some of these cases were taking maybe 10 or 15 minutes. So it's wrong to think that these women had any great time to make any kind of impression upon the jury. The best account, which is written at the time by Lord North, is nothing but scathing. He talks about these women as being befuddled, as being stupid, as being incredibly aged and worn down. He has this great, terrible phrase about if an artist wanted to paint witches, then you couldn't find three more malformed or grizzled or contemptible specimens in the entire country. So he's not their fan. At the same time, the mob is stirred up. Unfortunately, as the judges' coach and horses go over to cross the drawbridge into Exeter Castle, you can still see where this scene happened today in Rougemont Gardens, where the plaque to the women, appropriately enough, is set up. 
The horses refused to budge on the drawbridge. They wouldn't go any further. And the popular superstition ran around the town that they had been bewitched, that the witches had appeared as spectres and had done this to stop the trial going ahead. So again, the hue and cry is held against them in the town. And there is a sense that even in the dungeons underneath Exeter Castle, people attempted to gain entry to them. Francis Hahn, the would-be witch hunter, turns up again. They were a great spectacle. People talked about them. They were a real sort of nine-day wonder. So there wasn't a lot of justice. There wasn't a lot of rest. There wasn't a lot of time for these frightened, poor, cold, hungry women really to have a say of any kind in the courtroom. And so, of course, those testimonies or confessions, however forced that had been prepared beforehand suddenly becomes so important. And as a result, the women are convicted of witchcraft. It's a done deal, effectively. Once the pre-trial depositions go up, where effectively they admitted everything, and then they plead guilty in court, there's very little that can be done by them other than the chance of an appeal, which was still there and still a possibility. But it isn't acted on, and so the day of execution is set for the 25th of August, 1682. What do we know about their last hours? You mentioned about Temperance Lloyd and her apple, which is a very moving detail. What else do we know? Well, they handle themselves very differently. Mary Trembles, who's the one of the women we know the least about, has to be tied onto the cart, kicking and screaming. She doesn't want to go, she's forced to go. The other two women are far more impassive. They carry a certain dignity, I think, to the scaffold, which begins to change absolutely everything for them. Poor old Mary Trembles goes as meek as a lamb to execution. She has a final squabble, actually, with Susanna Lloyd on the scaffold itself, but her tragedy, really, is she never finds her own voice. The other two women do, however, and they do it in strange and surprising ways. Temperance Lloyd manages to face down her accusers. They save her to last to be executed, and they try and berate her again. But she doesn't confess to everything. She won't confess to raising storms. She won't confess to the murder of a boy. You can get the sense of her thinking through the accusations and beginning to refute them, to accept that she may have had the power to curse, but she certainly wasn't somebody who'd command the elements who could create great tempests like Shakespeare's Prospero. Susanna Edwards is more moving in the sense that she has sung the 40th Psalm. And if she chose it, if it wasn't projected onto her, and I think there is good evidence that she did choose it, she manages to find a voice in the last minutes of her life and a kind of revenge, because what the 40th Psalm says effectively, and if we think that the Hebrew poets who were the psalmists were amazing, potent wordsmiths, what she's trying to say to the mob is, you've brought me here, you're all around me, you're accusing me of these things, I am a great sinner, I have done great sins in my life, but... Maybe not the sins I'm accused of, and maybe you're sinners too. So the witches don't provide the edifying death that the witch hunters want. Francis Hahn cannot make a great career of himself, as did Stern and Hopkins, as Winthrop did in Salem, as experts on witchcraft, because 
the witches at the last minute have refused to play their allotted roles. And from this moment, from the most terrible last seconds of their lives, really become the germs of the women's rehabilitation in the eyes of later playwrights, dramatists of all kinds, novelists and artists. And it's really as a result of this that the witches get a measure of vengeance and do, it has to be said, have the last laugh on their accusers. Yes, they quickly become famous, don't they, through pamphlet literature and I suppose become, for want of a better term, national celebrities. Well, they do. England in this period and the whole 17th century is an incredibly literate place. Print is consumed voraciously and stories of witchcraft, just like today, sell. So there are three pamphlet accounts of their trial. There's a rather wonderful ballad as well that's set to the tune Fortune My Foe. And Fortune My Foe had had a prehistory. It's always kind of used for about 50, 60 years before the time of the women's trials as a sinister tune to accompany a ballad. And already it's associated with witchcraft. So it's sung in London streets. Their stories are reworked in the taverns, in the coffee houses, in the homes of polite society. And they do achieve a measure of fame, although it's reasonable to think that anywhere else but Biddeford, their national fame is quite short-lived. But the idea of Biddeford being a place of witches is something that lingers. It's something that lingers in the dark corners of the place. So when the Reverend Watkins is writing his history of the town in the 1790s at the time of the French Revolutionary Wars and the rise of Bonaparte, he talks about Biddeford still being a place of witches where the old beliefs still haven't completely died out. And although the Biddeford witches, as they had now sort of become this kind of collective identity, were the last to be executed under law, they weren't quite the last people to be accused or tried or even convicted for witchcraft in England, were they? No, this still goes on. The thing Europe-wide, really, is that the number of committals, the number of accusations for witchcraft on the village or town level, don't decline through our period. The witchcraft statutes are abolished in 1735-1736, so it's no longer a crime. But up until that time, the number of prosecutions stay pretty much the same. What is changing, though, is that the judiciary and juries will no longer convict, and that's the reason why women begin to walk away free from the courtroom. There's a coda in your book that I'd like to finish our conversation with as well, which is the campaign for the Biddeford witches to receive a judicial pardon. It's very interesting in terms of their modern reception, but also contrasting views of witchcraft today. Absolutely. I think the petitions were raised. It was a popular thing, women's groups, pagan groups, and it was taken up as well by the local Labour MP, Ben Bradshaw. So... This sense of human rights, human dignity, women's issues, of course, becoming more to the fore with the second wave of feminism after the late 1960s, all impact on our traditional image of the witch, that the witch has a remarkable transformation that's taken a few hundred years to get there, but it gathers pace exponentially after the late 60s, where the witch suddenly becomes the all-woman, 
the maiden, the mother and the crone, if you like. Somebody to be venerated as a source of wisdom rather than somebody to be decried or hunted to extinction as effectively a subhuman, as the witch hunters were trying to make out. And this sense of the pardons being a vehicle for historical redress is an incredibly potent one. At the gatherings, the little guerrilla actions that happened at the site of the hangings, organised by Judith Noble and her own women's group, where they leave flowers and little messages for the women right up to Jackie Juno and the witches' tea parties in Rougemont Gardens, the women were gifted something they'd never had in life. They had the support of their sisters and their laughter and a sense of ease and enjoyment that would have been utterly, utterly removed from them. So, in that sense, modern-day women, and it has to be said, men as well, or at least enlightened men, can see in this a restorative air of justice that the witches may not have had the last word in life, but they can be given something in terms of their posthumous reputations and a dignity and a role that they never had. And when we think of it, if you go through Rougemont Gardens, if you go to Biddeford Town Hall, the plaques raised up there, even the mural on the side of Exeter Library, of witches over a cauldron, they celebrate the three poor women. They celebrate Temperance Lloyd, Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles. They don't celebrate the Tory oligarchs who ruled Biddeford through the Town Hall and sent the women off to execution. They don't celebrate the trial judges. They don't celebrate the Secretary of State who decreed that they should hang. And they don't celebrate the witch hunters. All these people's names are forgotten. Utterly. They're not household names. But it's quite wonderful in a way that we think of the three women as being precisely that. People whose stories can be caught on the wind and amplified and really run with in a creative, interesting and hopefully enlightened fashion and there can be few forms of revenge as glorious and as empowering as that. And you have helped them with that revenge by this loving work of restoration. So thank you so much for this conversation and for this detailed forensic examination of their lives in your book. The Last Witches of England. Thank you, John, very much indeed. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure, Susanna, and I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. Thank you so very much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.